Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy with the final program of Enlightened by Love, David Cayley's series on the thought of Simone Weil. Religion is nothing else but a looking. Insofar as it claims to be anything else, it is inevitable that it should either be shut up inside churches or that it should stifle everything in every other place where it is found. Religion should not claim to occupy a place in society other than that which rightly belongs to supernatural love in the soul. True faith implies great discretion, even with regard to itself. The place of religion is a vexed subject these days. The religious complain that religion has been virtually banned from public discussion. Secularists think that religious conservatives are all too influential. But what exactly is at issue in these debates? What is religion? Simone Weil claimed it was nothing more than a looking, by which she meant that it should be a form of contemplation, a way of paying attention, but not a center of power. It's an unusual definition, but one that might actually help to clarify the contemporary scene. Simone Weil was a Christian mystic who never joined the Christian church, claiming that it was too much in need of what she called a philosophical cleanup. She was born in Paris in 1909 and was involved as a young woman in the radical politics of the 1930s. She died in 1943, aged only 34, in England, where she was working for the Free French Forces during the Second World War. She'd been suffering for several months from tuberculosis, its effect compounded by her unwillingness to eat more than the rations her compatriots in occupied France were getting, and by the devastation she felt in the face of the world's suffering and her own inability to do anything about it. She had written throughout her life, publishing in left-wing journals and literary reviews, and in her last five years, after, as she said, Christ took possession of her, she sketched out an entire new theology. With the exception of a couple of published essays, this remarkable body of thought was found in her letters, notebooks, and manuscripts, and published after her death. These posthumous writings created a sensation, and she was acclaimed variously as a prophet, a saint, and a religious genius. In this series, David Cayley has been exploring Simone Weil's intellectual and spiritual legacy. Tonight, in the final program of the set, he turns to her critique of the Judeo-Christian tradition and to the Reformation of which she felt it was in need. Enlightened by Love, Part 5, by David Cayley. Religion, it sometimes seems, is something we can't live with and can't live without. The reasons we can't live with it are currently on display all over the world, in religious wars and attempts by the religious to force their views on those who don't share them. The reasons we can't live without it relate to the spiritual emptiness of our civilization and to the fact that without religion, we just worship something worse. 
What seems to be needed is an account of religion that breaks out of this impasse. And that is what Simone Weil tried to provide. Simone Weil was a child of the Enlightenment, secular, rationalist, free-thinking, who became a Christian mystic. It happened in her later 20s, at a time when she was suffering from acutely painful headaches. Christ himself came down and took possession of me, she says, and I felt in the midst of my suffering the presence of a love like that which one can read in the smile on a beloved face. This sudden contact with God was, she says, absolutely unexpected, and the last five years of her life were largely occupied with trying to understand it. She entered into a dialogue with Catholic Christianity, questioning many priests and sampling Christian sources ranging from the works of St. Augustine to the decrees of the Council of Trent. She also read widely in other religious traditions, exploring Taoism, Zen Buddhism, and the Bhagavad Gita, which she particularly loved and learned to read in Sanskrit. The result of her research and reflection was a thorough and searching criticism of Judeo-Christian tradition. She offers in its stead a religious philosophy whose hallmarks are its universality, its insistence on complete intellectual freedom, and its rejection of a god of power. In what follows, I will outline this critique and the renovation of Christianity to which it points. She begins from the assumption that all human beings are inherently religious. Even materialists place somewhere outside themselves a good which far surpasses them, which helps them from outside, and towards which their thought turns in a movement of desire and prayer. For Napoleon it was his star. For Marxists it is history. But they place the good in this world like the giants of folklore who hide their hearts or their lives inside a fish in a lake guarded by a dragon. No human being escapes the necessity of conceiving some good outside himself, towards which his thought turns in a movement of desire, supplication, and hope. For every creative mind, whether poet, composer, or mathematician, the unknown source of inspiration is this good to which a beseeching desire is directed. Consequently, the only choice is between worshipping the true God or an idol. The true God, according to Simone Weil, is a God beyond all human projection or manipulation, a God of pure, disinterested love who neither intervenes nor exerts power in the world. God makes the world, in her view, by withdrawing from it, in order that we should be free. Everything in the world speaks of God, but God is absent from creation, except as love. On this basis, she distinguishes two types of religion. Creation is not an act of self-expansion, but of restraint and renunciation. The religions which have a concept of this renunciation, of God's apparent absence and his secret presence, are true religion, the translation into different languages of the great revelation. 
The religions which represent divinity as a commanding presence seem false. Even though they are monotheistic, they are idolatrous. Idolatry for Jews and Christians has usually meant the veneration of images. Vey has a somewhat different view. She thinks monotheism, of the type we have inherited from ancient Israel, can sometimes be the worst of idolatries because it cannot recognize itself as such. Images are a guarantee against a certain kind of idolatry. It is impossible to stand before a piece of carved wood and say to it, Thou hast made the heavens and the earth. But the Hebrews could perfectly well address their God in this way, because this God, not being a material object, could not be recognized as a created thing. The Hebrews called their own collective soul God. Collective soul means for ve, the nation or entire people. A God of wood, plaster, or stone, she says, is easily identified as an artifact, but not so the God of monotheism in whom no human hand is visible. Monotheism, therefore, is the likelier to become a power religion in which a people worship under the name of God a projection of their own collective existence. She finds examples in the historical books of the Hebrew Bible. There, God chooses one people and seems to despise all others, giving away their lands to his chosen ones and frequently commanding the destruction of their enemies. In the book of Samuel, for example, God orders King Saul to completely exterminate the Amalekites and then reproves Saul when he spares a single soul and some of the livestock. This identification between a people and God, they thought, was not true religion, but an attempt to rise above the human condition. She saw a second example in the ancient Romans. Both the Romans and the Hebrews believed themselves to be exempt from the misery that is the common human lot. The Romans saw their country as the nation chosen by destiny to be mistress of the world. With the Hebrews, it was their God who exalted them, and they retained their superior position just as long as they obeyed him. In Rome, gladiatorial fights took the place of tragedy. With the Hebrews, misfortune was a sure indication of sin, and hence a legitimate object of contempt. To them, a vanquished enemy was abhorrent to God himself. The Hebrews and the Romans were always Simone Weil's bête noire. Whether this was fair is a question I'll take up in a moment, but it was her opinion that both peoples had identified God with power and good fortune with God's favor. The contrasting case for her was the ancient Greeks, whom she thought had a more impartial view of humanity. An example is the Iliad, a book she loved and could read in Greek. What is unique in the Iliad is the bitterness that proceeds from tenderness and that spreads over the whole human race, impartial as sunlight. Never does the tone lose its coloring of bitterness, yet never does the bitterness drop into lamentation. Justice and love which have hardly any place in this study of extremes and of unjust acts of violence, nevertheless bathe the work in their light without ever becoming noticeable themselves 
except as a kind of accent. Nothing precious is scorned, whether or not death is its destiny. Everyone's unhappiness is laid bare without dissimulation or disdain. No man is set above or below the conditions common to all men. Whatever is destroyed is regretted. Victors and vanquished are brought equally near us. Both are seen as counterparts of the poet and the listener as well. If there is any difference, it is that the enemy's misfortunes are possibly more sharply felt. The spirit of the Iliad, in Simon Weil's view, continued in Greek tragedy, where misfortune was portrayed in the same light of dispassionate mercy. And this attitude was found again, she thought, in the Christian Gospels. The Gospels are the last marvelous expression of the Greek genius, as the Iliad is the first. The accounts of the Passion show that a divine spirit incarnate is changed by misfortune. This spirit trembles before suffering and death and feels itself in the depths of its agony to be cut off from man and God. The sense of human misery gives the Gospels that accent of simplicity that is the mark of the Greek genius. This accent cannot be separated from the idea that inspired the Gospels, for the sense of human misery is a precondition of justice and love. He who does not realize to what extent shifting fortune holds in subjection every human spirit cannot regard as fellow creatures those whom chance has separated from him by an abyss, nor can he love them as he loves himself. Moreover, nothing is so rare as to see misfortune fairly portrayed. The tendency is either to treat the unfortunate person as though catastrophe were his natural vocation, or to ignore the way in which suffering marks the soul and recasts the sufferer in misfortune's image. Once Greece was destroyed, nothing remained of this spirit but pale reflections. For Simon Weil, misfortune is the great leveler, the great source of human equality. The sense of human misery, as she calls it, is not the sense that all are miserable, but that each one of us might be, and that whether we are or not is largely outside our power. True religions possess this sense. False religions turn away from it into consoling fantasies. That is Simon Weil's critical distinction. Whether she is right that it completely divides the ancient Hebrews from the Greeks and the Hebrew Bible from the Christian New Testament is another question. It seems to me that her knowledge of the Hebrew Bible was relatively cursory and superficial, unlike her knowledge of the Greeks, which was often profound and studied. She belonged as well to a Jewish family who had completely rejected Judaism which probably also disposed her against a book which she read only hurriedly and only as the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. 
In any case, I think that she overlooked in the Old Testament many of the qualities that she loved in the New Testament, as well as overlooking much that was not to her taste in the New Testament. Simon Weil worked fast, died young, and like many geniuses, sometimes grabbed from her sources only what fit her own purposes. It also needs to be said that Simon Weil's point about the Hebrew Bible refers only to the historical books, most notably Joshua, Samuel, and Kings, and does not touch the prophets, the books of wisdom, Job, and some of the Psalms, which she admired and found beautiful. What she objected to was the idea of a chosen people, the idea that this people had a divine mandate to dominate others, and the idea that God superintends human destinies on the basis of a divine plan. She considered these objections urgent because she viewed these ideas not as the superseded notions of an ancient people, but as a conception that had been carried over into Christianity as well. To Simone Weil, the crucifixion of Christ, as narrated in the four Gospels, represents the supreme truth, that God is present in the world only as suffering love. But this truth, she thought, began to be eclipsed within the Christian religion almost from the beginning, and the bitterness of this truth sweetened by its incorporation into a triumphant divine plan of salvation. To undergo suffering and death joyfully was, from the very beginning, considered a sign of grace in the Christian martyrs. As though grace could do more for a human being than it could for Christ. These were people whose own scriptures showed that God himself, once he became a man, could not face the harshness of destiny without a long tremor of anguish. They should have understood that the only people who can give the impression of having risen to a higher plane, who seem superior to ordinary human misery, are the people who resort to the aids of illusion, exaltation, or fanaticism to conceal the harshness of destiny from their own eyes. The man who does not wear the armor of the lie cannot experience force without being touched by it to the very soul. Grace can prevent this touch from corrupting him, but it cannot spare him the wound. Having forgotten it too well, Christian tradition can only rarely recover that simplicity that renders so poignant every sentence in the story of the Passion. The early Christians pulled the sting from the crucifixion, according to Simon Weil, by inserting it into a consoling narrative taking place, as she says, on a higher plane. This was partly the effect of their belief in Christ's resurrection, a doctrine they thought should be treated with great discretion. She didn't reject it, but she did object to its being used to turn the cross into a sign of triumph. The crucifixion, for her, was a supreme instance of a truth available to all peoples at all times, that God suffers with us. But the early Christians, she thought, had treated it as a revelation unique to them. And as a result, these Christians felt called to announce what they alone recognized, she says, because they alone were privy to the divine plan. Primitive Christianity concocted the poison 
represented by the notion of progress, through the idea of a divine system of education designed to make men fit to receive Christ's message. This fitted in with the hopes of a universal conversion of the nations and the end of the world, regarded as both being imminent. This metaphor of divine teaching dissolves the individual destiny, which alone counts for salvation, into that of the peoples in general. Christianity tried to discover a harmony in history. This is the germ in Hegel, and consequently Marx. The notion of history as a directed continuity is Christian. It seems to me that there are few more completely false ideas than this. It is seeking harmony in becoming, in what is the exact opposite of the eternal. It is a bad union of opposites. According to Simone Weil, history, or becoming as she also calls it, can never be harmonized with what is eternally true. She agrees with Plato that there is an infinite distance between necessity, which is the world's way, and the good, which is God, and which is above and beyond existence. But she saw Christianity as claiming that the cross of Jesus had brought the good into history in a unique and decisive way and set history moving inexorably towards a final good, an idea she completely rejected. Chronology cannot play a decisive role in a relationship between God and man, a relationship one of the terms of which is eternal. If the redemption had not been present on this earth from the very beginning, it would not be possible to pardon God for the affliction of so many innocent people, so many people uprooted, enslaved, tortured, and put to death in the course of centuries preceding the Christian era. Christ is present on this earth unless men drive him away, wherever there is crime and affliction. Without the supernatural effects of this presence, how would the innocent, crushed beneath the weight of affliction, be able to avoid falling into the crime of cursing God and consequently into damnation? The proof that the content of Christianity existed before Christ is that since his day there have been no very noticeable changes in men's behavior. The presence of Christ means to Simon Weil that God suffers with us. And this suffering with us must have been part of creation from the beginning, she thinks. Otherwise, how could we accept the pains of those who lived before Christ, or the sufferings of people and cultures that remained beyond the reach of Christianity for centuries? God's love is impartial as sunlight, she says. It's distributed equally everywhere. It is impossible that the whole truth should not be present at every time and every place, available for anyone who desires it. No one who asks for bread is given a stone, and truth is bread. It is absurd to suppose that for centuries nobody, or hardly anybody, desired the truth and then that in the following centuries it was desired by whole peoples. Whatever has not been available at all times and places to whoever desires the truth 
is itself something other than the truth. To Simone Weil, the universality of truth ruled out the idea that the divine mercy could be known only in the person of Jesus. However, the Jesus of the Gospels did represent to her a perfect epitome of God's love. And it was good, she thought, that news of this incarnation be shared with other peoples, but not as a competing religion. When Christ said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations and bring them the glad tidings, he commanded his apostles to bring glad tidings, not a theology. He himself, having come, as he said, only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, added these good tidings to the religion of Israel. He probably wished that each of the apostles should in the same way add the good tidings of the life and death of Christ onto the religion of the country in which he happened to find himself. He never said, compel them to renounce all that their ancestors have looked upon as sacred and to adopt as a holy book the history of a small nation unknown to them. Personally, I should never give as much as a dime towards any missionary enterprise. I think that for any man, a change of religion is as dangerous a thing as a change of language is for a writer. It may turn out a success, but it can also have disastrous consequences. Vey's comparison here of religions to languages is telling. For her, a religion is true in the same way that a poem is true. Its truth doesn't preclude other poems. Truth is universal, but it exists in many versions. What stands in the way of a universal, non-divisive account of religion, according to Simone Weil, is the idea that God is in any sense partial or particular. This idea took an especially pernicious turn, she thinks, when the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. At this point, she thinks, God began to be conceived as a kind of heavenly emperor. What was lost in the process was the idea of the divine not as an imperial personage, but as an impersonal world order. The personal conception of God is found in the Gospels, she admits, in the image of God as a father. But often the actions of this father are compared to an impersonal mechanism. An example is Jesus saying that the perfection of God, which we should imitate, is found in God's making his sun to shine on the evil and the good, and sending his rain on the just and the unjust alike. What is held up as a model of perfection to the human soul is the blind impartiality of matter, indifferent to men's individual quality. All the parables comparing the kingdom of God to a seed are also connected with this notion of an impersonal providence. Grace descends from God upon all beings. What becomes of it depends on what they are. 
A man scatters seed on the land, says the Gospel of Mark. Night and day, when he sleeps, when he wakes, the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. Of its own accord, the land produces grain. Everything that has to do with asking is likewise suggestive of a piece of mechanism. All real desire for pure good, after a certain degree of intensity has been reached, causes the good in question to descend. If this result is not attained, either the desire is not real, or it is too weak, or the good desired is imperfect, or it is mixed with evil. When the conditions have been fulfilled, God never refuses. Supernatural mechanisms are at least as dependable as are the laws of gravity. One finds in the Gospels what one might call a supernatural physics of the human soul. This supernatural physics for Ve is the form taken by God's providence. The word refers to God's care, his provision for us. But Ve thinks we mistake this care if we think of it as something personal, as if God could prefer one person to another, one country to another. She also thinks that providence is misunderstood if it is distinguished from chance, as if some are subject to mere fortune, but others are the beneficiaries of divine planning, which engineers for them an exceptional fate. She found a comical example in an article she came across, which was written on the anniversary of Columbus reaching America. It was said that God had sent Christopher Columbus to America in order that there should be, a few centuries later, a nation capable of defeating Hitler. God apparently despises colored races, so the wholesale extermination of Native American peoples in the 16th century seemed to him a small price to pay if it meant the salvation of Europeans in the 20th. He was evidently unable to bring them salvation by less bloody means. One would have thought that instead of sending Christopher Columbus four centuries in advance, it would have been simpler to send someone to assassinate Hitler round about the year 1923. But it would be a mistake to imagine that this example represents an exceptional degree of stupidity. All providential interpretations of history are unavoidably situated on exactly the same level. They called providentialism the belief that God organizes history and manages the fortunes of individuals, and she thought that it had badly undermined Western Christianity. It had created an opposition between religion and science, for example, by making God's providence appear as something other than the natural order of things which science studies. And more generally, she thought, providentialism had made religion implausible and its believers defensive. Most of those who embrace Christianity are attracted by a need of the heart. But for religious feeling to emanate from the spirit of truth, one should be absolutely prepared to abandon one's religion if it should turn out to be anything other than the truth, even if that should mean losing all motive for living. In this state of mind alone is it possible to discern whether there is truth in it or not. 
otherwise one doesn't even bother to propound the problem in all its rigor. God ought not to be for a human heart a reason for living, like his treasure is for a miser. The absence of the spirit of truth from religion, Simonve thought, was a consequence of a false opposition between faith and intellect. For her, the proper relationship between faith and intellect is complementary, not antagonistic. She does not accept the modern view that truth is something objective, that we know the truth of something by holding it away from ourselves in order to get a view of it unclouded by faith or love. She says that the intellect is enlightened by faith in God's love. Religious doctrines, therefore, are not something which the intellect should try to judge. They are something the intellect should use as a source of light. This is Vey scholar Diogenes Allen of the Princeton Theological Seminary. What's interesting is her revival of what's called illuminationism in the tradition. This is to say those, these doctrines like creation, incarnation, trinity, are above the intellect to fully comprehend. You can understand them enough to love them. If you love them, then the intellect is illumined. That's what faith is, by them. So you understand the things of this world in a new way and they cast light on the dark corners of life, including such thing as affliction. The cross casts light on affliction, where otherwise we're completely baffled. So she compares doctrine to a flashlight. Many of us look at the bulb and we get no illumination. It blinds us. And an awful lot of theologians do this. They just keep stirring the doctrines over and up. And she says, instead, the flashlight is to be used to cast light on the dark places of the world. So even though doctrine is above the intellect to grasp fully, to comprehend, to prove, nonetheless we can understand enough of them by our minds to love them. If we love them, then they can cast light. So the mind is illumined. So it, 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 this is a, a remarkable combination of faith and reason. Now, there's another side to this. You can cheat awfully quickly by saying, oh, it's above the intellect accepted by faith. And that's tyranny to the intellect. No, it must illumine the intellect. The only way it can illumine the intellect is if you ask questions and begin to see how these things that are above the mind illumine the mind. And tons of folks and you know, that are nominal Christians and very talkative about it, very dogmatic about it, their minds aren't being illumined at all. They're just looking at the flashlight, and their minds are not illumined at all. That's why they're often so wooden and dogmatic and not even interested in the whole range of life. So theology becomes a living thing in Vey's hands. It doesn't happened in many academic theologians. It's living why she casts light on so many, many dark corners. And that's her originality, the place where she throws light. <laughs> 
The dogmas of the faith are not things to be affirmed. They are things to be regarded from a certain distance with attention, respect, and love. This attentive and loving gaze brings a light into the soul, which illuminates all aspects of human life on this earth. Dogmas lose this virtue as soon as they are affirmed. The propositions, Jesus Christ is God, or the consecrated bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ, when enunciated as facts, have, strictly speaking, no meaning whatever. The value of these propositions does not belong to the order of factual truth, but to a higher order, for it is a value impossible for the intelligence to grasp except indirectly through the effects produced. The mysteries of the faith are not a proper object for the intelligence considered as a faculty permitting affirmation or denial. Religious doctrines, in Vey's view, are mysteries which exceed the intellect but enlighten it. We have no basis on which to say yes or no to them until we have first tested them for the light they shed. But when religion is institutionalized, she thinks, these mysteries become the basis of a social identity and are then imposed on people as a condition of membership. The result, she says, is that religious doctrines addressed only to a certain part of the soul are held and asserted as if they possessed an everyday, matter-of-fact validity. The mysteries of the Catholic faith and those of other religions or metaphysical traditions are not meant to be believed by all parts of the soul. Only the part of myself which is made for the supernatural should adhere to these mysteries. But this adherence is more a matter of love than of belief. With those who have received a Christian education, the lower parts of the soul become attached to these mysteries when they have no right to do so. The mysteries of faith cannot be either affirmed or denied. They must be placed above that which we can affirm or deny. That something can be beyond affirmation or denial, yet still nourish us, Vey says, is shown by our experience of beauty. The mind finds nothing in beauty on which to fasten, and yet it speaks to us. When one gives one's whole attention to a beautiful piece of music, the intelligence finds nothing therein to affirm or deny. But all the soul's faculties become silent and are wrapped up in listening. The listening itself is applied to an incomprehensible object, but one which contains a part of reality and of good. And the intelligence, which cannot seize hold of any truth therein, finds nevertheless a food. I believe that the mystery of the beautiful in nature and art is a sensible reflection of the mystery of faith. Because faith was a mystery for Simone Weil, she strongly objected to its being made in any way compulsory. One of the things, for example, that she found most offensive about the Roman Catholic Church was its use of the formula anathema sit, be it cursed, 
by which the church condemned, expelled, and at the worst killed so-called heretics. To her, it was right to try to preserve the purity of doctrine, but absolutely wrong to try to coerce belief in this way. The church's attempt to punish disbelief or wrong belief to her exposed a profound and destructive misunderstanding. Faith, she said, could not be willed or forced, but only waited for, impatient attention. Intellectual adherence is never owed to anything whatsoever, for it is never in any degree a voluntary thing. Attention alone is voluntary, and it alone forms the subject of an obligation. If one tries to bring about in oneself an intellectual adherence by the exercise of the will, what actually results is not an intellectual adherence, but suggestion. Nothing degrades faith more. Nothing has contributed more towards weakening faith and encouraging unbelief than the mistaken conception of an obligation on the part of the intelligence. The intelligence, Simon Weil wrote, and I'm quoting directly, requires total liberty, implying the right to deny everything and allowing of no domination. She thinks that only if the intelligence remains uncompelled can it arrive by its own operations at the threshold of mystery. And only if the intelligence has completely exhausted its own devices, she said, can mystery be accepted. Mystery must not be used to provide a cover for saying anything whatsoever. For then it becomes an instrument of totalitarian power, and anything that it pleases the Church to say has to be accepted. The notion of mystery is only legitimate when the most logical and rigorous use of the intelligence leads to an inescapable contradiction. Then, like a lever, the notion of mystery carries thought beyond the impasse to the other side of the unopenable door, beyond the domain of the intelligence and above it. But to arrive beyond the domain of the intelligence, one must have traveled all through it to the end, and by a path traced with unimpeachable rigor. True mystery begins, Simon Weil says, only at the point at which the intelligence has done its all and run into contradiction. Past this point, the intelligence can see only by the light of love. Whether this light is true is a question of experience, says Weil scholar Martin Andick, because faith according to Vey, is the experience that the intelligence is enlightened by love. It's interesting that here she's saying not just that uh, intellect is enlightened by love, illuminated or lit by it, but we have experience of this. It's not, this is not an intellectual doctrine so much as an experimental one. In other words, we could say that this is a proposed as an empirical claim. Try it and see for yourself. And uh, she generally connects faith with experience and practice and action. This is uh, why she will contrast faith with belief. She boldly says that faith is not a matter of belief, of affirming propositions, 
we must adhere to the dogmas of the church that are proposed to us with our love. But that means to act on them, to take them on faith and act on them in an experimental spirit. See whether they are true. Wait for the illumination of our intellect by experience. Not to affirm them as though we understood them, as though they are now had to be fitted into our intellectual picture of the world. We ought to try them out and see whether they don't make the world more understandable, clearer. I mean, uh, sometimes she speaks of beauty as a proof. And I think it would be very easy to get this wrong. It's not that she's appealing to wishfulness. See if you don't like this view of life. It's a matter of seeing whether this view of life doesn't make more better sense than it did before you thought about it in connection with God as creating out of love and suffering everything in love. In the years after she became convinced of the truth of Christianity, Simone Weil spent a good deal of time circling warily around the Roman Catholic Church. She spoke at length with a number of priests, and as a result of a particularly close friendship with Father Perrin in Marseille, considered being baptized. In the end, she rejected the idea of joining the Church. She set down her reasons in a series of remarkable letters to Father Perrin that were later published along with several of her essays, under the title, Waiting for God. In these letters, she urges on Father Perrin the idea that Christianity must become, in her word, universal. One of the things which prevents this, she thinks, is the power of the church as a social institution. What frightens me is the church as a social structure. My natural disposition is to be very easily influenced, too much influenced, and above all by any collective. For this reason, I am afraid of the church patriotism existing in Catholic circles. There were saints who approved of the Crusades or the Inquisition. I cannot help thinking they were wrong. But if I see more clearly on this point than they did, I who am so far below them, then I must also admit that in this matter they were blinded by something very powerful. I am well aware that the Church must inevitably be a social structure, otherwise it would not exist. But insofar as it is a social structure, it belongs to the prince of this world. Church patriotism, as Vey calls it here, was for her but one facet of the larger problem of exclusiveness within institutional Christianity. If Christian doctrine is true, she thought, then it is true for everyone, and one ought to begin thinking through what this means. But though the word Catholic means universal, she said, she saw no disposition within the Catholic Church of her time to actually be universal. Christianity should contain all vocations without exception, since it is Catholic. But in my eyes, Christianity is Catholic by right, but not in fact. So many things are outside it. 
So many things that I love and do not want to give up. So many things that God loves, otherwise they would not be in existence. All the immense stretches of past centuries, except the last twenty, are among them. All the countries inhabited by the colored races. All secular life in the white people's countries. In the history of those countries, all the traditions banned as heretical. And all those things resulting from the Renaissance, too often degraded, but not quite without value. I should betray the truth, that is to say, the aspect of truth that I see. If I left the point where I have been since my birth, at the intersection of Christianity and everything that is not Christianity. Simone Weil insisted on remaining at the intersection of Christianity and everything which is not Christianity, because she believed the truth of Christianity to be universal and non-exclusive, and because she thought this truth pointed to the world and should not remain enclosed in some separate religious sphere. Her quest for a reformed understanding of Christianity led her to three conclusions, which I think bear on the problem I posed at the outset, the place of religion in society. First, she argues against the idea that Christianity represents a historically unique revelation. Second, she insists that religion is not a question of belief, but of experience, so belief cannot be compelled in advance of experience. And finally, she holds that religion is corrupted by the exercise of any social power whatever. Religion should be present in society, she says, only as a way of seeing things. Religion is nothing else but a looking. Insofar as it claims to be anything else, it is inevitable that it should either be shut up inside churches or that it should stifle everything in every other place where it is found. Religion should not claim to occupy a place in society other than that which rightly belongs to supernatural love in the soul. Many people corrupt charity in themselves because they want to make it occupy too large and too visible a place in their soul. True faith implies great discretion, even with regard to itself. To call religion a looking is to purge it of all power and all social standing and to think only of the light it sheds. It sounds so slight, so modest, and yet it was, in a sense, all that Simone Weil aspired to, to let things be, to let them be just what they are, and to let them speak to us without putting ourselves in the way. A beautiful thing involves no good except itself. We are drawn to it without knowing what to ask of it. We want to get behind the beauty, but it is only a surface, a mirror, that sends us back our own desire for goodness. It is a sphinx, an enigma, a mystery which is painfully tantalizing. We should like to feed upon it, but it is merely something to look at. It appears only from a certain distance. The great trouble in human life is that looking and eating 
are two different operations. Children feel this trouble already when they look at a cake for a long time, almost regretting that it should have to be eaten, and yet are unable to help eating it. It may be that vice, depravity, and crime are nearly always, in their essence, attempts to eat beauty, to eat what we should only look at. Two winged companions, says one of the Upanishads, two birds are on the branch of a tree. One eats the fruit, the other looks at it. These two birds are the two parts of our soul. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to the final program of Enlightened by Love, our five-hour series on the thought of Simone Weil. The programs were written, presented, and produced by David Cayley, with the help of Linda Shorten and Dave Field. Readings from Simone Weil were by Kate Cayley. The incidental music was drawn from the works of Eric Satie. David Cayley would like to thank Uta Mason, and the members of the American Simon Weil Society for their help with these programs. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. <laughs>